Welcome back to another episode of The Fishbowl. My name is Zach. I'm one of the podcast hosts. I'm Michelle. And I'm Kevin. And we're talking today with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, who is the CEO of Pearson Rabbits and was a former practicing OBGYN. Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, everybody. Tell us a little bit about your story. What what got you into disability insurance and how did you go from OBGYN life to the CEO? So it was not by choice. As Zach mentioned, I am an OBGYN by training. Unfortunately, I was kicked in the shoulder during a difficult patient delivery and she just got me in the right spot. And I ended up with a torn labrum, wasn't handled appropriately, developed a frozen shoulder, had surgery, went to sleep, getting told I'd be back to work in 12 weeks. And August 3rd of this year will be 10 years that I am out of clinical medicine, not that I'm counting or anything. And I learned a lot the hard way. I thought I did everything right. And it was really through ignorance, lack of education, lack of advocacy that I didn't really have what I needed. I was grossly overfunded for life insurance and underfunded for disability insurance. And when I needed help, my original broker really couldn't be bothered. And I found out some things about our hospital policy that I didn't know and my private policies that I didn't know and really kind of dove in headfirst to getting educated and then started lecturing to area residency programs so that kids, I'm sorry, I'm aging myself, so that young physicians would not make the same mistakes I made. And they started actually asking for help. And I was like, well, I guess the only way to do this ethically was to get licensed. And so that's what I did and started a company at our kitchen table and we'll be six years old next week. That is an incredible story and eye-opening for a lot of us. I think we commonly talk about disability insurance and it's, I I, want to say, you know, maybe blown off in the setting of it's just another added expense in a world that we don't have a lot of money to work with as a resident. Understood. Bridging from that, tell us why, why is disability insurance important as a resident? So disability insurance is important for everyone, right? I'm, I'm going to kind of just put that out there. We're taught or at least socialized very young, right? You need car insurance. You need health insurance. Um, you need homeowners or renters insurance. A lot of people have jewelry, right? Insured. We don't talk about insuring our ability to make money. It, it just seems quite foreign if you've never really heard about it, right? And at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's income protection. So something happens to you, you can't do your job the way that you've been training, prepping, working towards that you're going to get some money back, right? Interestingly enough, why it's so important for residents per se, as opposed to why not wait till later is several fold. One, age factors into cost, right? So you're never younger than you are today. And two, right? I, I mean, it sounds Damn. different. Also, there are discounts that are available while you're in training that once you capture that, it stays with you for the rest of time. And so you can actually save thousands of dollars over the course of a policy life. And when you're a resident, when you're a fellow, the carriers don't look at how much money you make and they don't look at your group benefits. Everybody qualifies for what's basically known as a resident package. And for some primary care docs, when they become attendings, they actually won't qualify for that much. I was one of those people because once you become an attending, the game changes. We're really not supposed to be overinsured, right? That there has to be, or there's supposed to be a theoretical 
incentive for people to get back to work. And they're hedging their bets on Vegas odds, right? That as a resident, as a fellow, you're not going to go out. Now, I have a few horror stories, right? But once you become an attending, they look at how much money do you make? What benefits do you receive from your employer, if any, and who pays for them? Because that affects taxation. And then that plays into what you qualify for. So in in normal terms, I guess, you can't come to me and say, Steph, I want $20,000 of benefit. I'm willing to pay for it. If the algorithm doesn't work, it doesn't work. I, I can't make that happen. So the goal as a resident is to get as much as you can for as cheap as you can so that you're somewhat protected when you become an, uh, an attending. Now, granted, your high earners, it's kind of a different story, but there are so many physicians out there who are not making gobs and gobs of money, right? Wow. Um, and I, so full disclosure, I recently went through your company to establish disability insurance. And so that's definitely my disclosure in speaking with <laughs> you today. What's the way to describe it? I guess I'd like a coming to Jesus with disability insurance. I consider myself financially pretty well well off. You know, I think I have a rough idea of how things work. And I remember when I sat down, you know, I thought about it. I was a paramedic for a few years and then I now work as an emergency medicine physician. We see things coming through the door all the time and the time. people never expect to end up where they're at. Of course. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was crazy of me not to be looking into this. I would agree with you. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's always the thought process of, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Right. But we hear your story. And then shortly after hearing that story, we have an attending physician that we work with that was also injured and is affecting his work and is going through um, problems with disability insurance. And so that is very frightening. Yeah. And I, I'll have to say that I'm very ignorant in the world of insurance. Um, I, it seems very daunting uh, and overwhelming. Like, what type of insurance should I be looking into? What, what are some key terms that I need to be looking for? Because I, I know nothing about the insurance world. Um, I don't think it was really taught to us very well. Not at all. You know, and, and that is part of the reason that we exist, right? Um, I do think that financial literacy education has come a long way in the last 10 years. Certainly when I was a resident 20 something years ago, that was not the case. Now hearing you guys who are currently in it telling me that you're not getting educated is kind of frightening, but it doesn't have to be confusing and it doesn't have to be overwhelming, but a lot of that comes into how you're getting educated, right? And Oftentimes, folks will balk a little bit at the time that it takes, right? We set up people for their first call, and it's on average 30 to 45 minutes. And I get it. I remember being a resident. I didn't have work hours limitation until my chief year. So I get it, right? I remember not being able to eat, not being able to pee, let alone taking out a half hour or 45 minutes to have a talk with somebody, right? but it's all because you need to be properly educated. I found out my group benefit didn't cover work-related injuries. I was flatly denied. I had no oh, idea, wow. right? And it used to be completely the exception to the rule. We're seeing it a lot more now since COVID. And not only are they saying they're not covering work-related injuries, they're saying they're not covering work-related illnesses. That's a slippery slope. I don't know how we're supposed to figure out where we got an illness from. Mm -hmm. And there's no standardization of language in insurance. That is what makes it confusing. I find it irritating. It's important to get that education up front so that you don't make mistakes down the line. And you want to talk to somebody who this is what they do all day, every day. Mm -hmm. The industry changes a lot. Companies can use the same phrasing and define it differently. They can use similar or different phrasing and define it similarly, it's confusing, For right? Sure. And 
there's a lot to be said for making sure that you understand the differences. It's not an apples to apples. And I heard somebody once say this in a different industry, but I'm stealing it. You know, we always talk about one size fits all. This is very much a one size fits one. It is not the same for two people. Everyone has their unique backstories. Part of why we do what we do here on the education piece is to ask the hard questions up front so that there are no surprises, right? Medical underwriting can be pretty invasive. You have to answer medical questions a million times. The companies have access to your medical records, your pharmaceutical records, your motor vehicle records. You only want to go through that process one time, but you want to have an idea and an expectation of what's going to happen. We're trying to get people the best coverage. The companies have to do their risk mitigation too, and they're looking for things not to cover, right? And so asking the right questions up front at least lets people have realistic expectations. Any agent or broker can tell you whatever they want. At the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding after you go through underwriting. And the fact that I have medical background, my husband, who is now our CEO, was actually a ER critical care flight nurse. So we have two medical brains, right, that we can review intakes and also allows us on another side to advocate in a way that a lot of other people don't. So if an underwriting decision comes back and it doesn't really make sense to me, I can kind of argue a little bit. Now, I will say community medicine and insurance medicine are not the same. And that's a really hard concept for physicians to wrap their brains around. Hmm. Okay. And I think I went way off tangent on what your original question was. No, it's absolutely Sorry. fine. We'll just flow with it. <laughs> um, you did start to talk about, or you mentioned the like the language that some underwriters choose to use or insurance companies decide to use. Um, what should we be looking out for? What should we like stray away from? So easier to tell you what to look for. Okay. Um, it's not a big playground. Currently, there are only five companies that truly cater to physicians and offer what I like to call specialty-specific coverage. You guys might have heard the term own occupation thrown around, mm -hmm. but the companies use different phrasing. So not only do you want to make sure that it is specialty-specific, you want it to be specialty-specific by your occupation, and by the definition of total disability. Okay. What you want your policy to say is that you are considered disabled if you cannot do your job, regardless if you're gainfully employed in another occupation. There are policies out there that say their own occupation, and they may define own occupation as what's called held to the national economy or the local labor market. It is not specific to what one employee does at one employer site. That definition sucks. <laughs> it allows them to cast this really wide net that says this is what you would, could, should be able to do based on your training, education, and skill set. And there are policies out there that define total disability as the inability to do your job and not being gainfully employed. Changing and to regardless changes everything. I used to say I'd give my left arm to be home with my boys more. Turns out I gave my left arm to be home with my boys more. And after six weeks, wanted to kill everybody. <laughs> most respect for stay-at-home parents. I know. <laughs> right? And you don't want to have to worry about losing part or all of your benefit while you're trying to figure out what's next, Right? And short of really catastrophic disabilities, most of the disabled docs that I've had the, I don't want to say pleasure because it's a fraternity nobody wants to be part of, but I've spoken to many and taken care of many. And most of us try to figure out something else to do if for no other reason to get out of the house, mm -hmm. right? And so the most important thing is it's truly specialty specific. Then you start getting into kind of what are the smaller building blocks. So they're called riders. So these are the things that you have to add into your policy to make it quality, right? 
Um, again, shouldn't come as a surprise. There are some different names, different definitions. So I'll kind of paint in broad strokes. You want to be able to get more coverage in the future without having to go through medical underwriting again. They all call it something different. Um, but basically, I tell people, think about, you know, the plastic kiddie pools that folks use in their yards for their toddlers, yeah, right? Course. Every company has one of them full of money. They may have a different triggering event. They may have different rules around it. But the goal is to go through medical underwriting once and never have to give medical information again. There is something called a partial or residual benefit in the event that you have to go part-time because of injury or illness. So it's not by choice. It's not, I want to be home with my kids. I'm taking a sabbatical. It is injury or illness dictated care by a physician, right? Think things that cause fatigue, MS, other autoimmune diseases, early degenerative diseases, working through chemo. Last year was a really bad breast cancer year. And all of my women tried to go back to work in some capacity during their chemo treatments. Wow. So what that, yeah, <laughs> there are more residual claims filed and paid every year than total. I think that one's super important. Again, different triggering events, different ways of paying you back. Again, not to make you whole, but to bridge the gap, right? And so I do think that one's super important. There is a cost of living adjustment or COLA, which is in future inflationary protection. It kicks in when you go on claim. So you're sick or injured, they're paying you. As you hit your anniversary, your actual benefit will go up based on the language in the policy. I've had nine increases. So I got hurt turning 40. I'll be 50 this year. It's made a difference of thousands in what I'm getting paid, right? That benefit equates to more money the younger you become disabled, right? On the other side, there's a catastrophic benefit, which is exactly what it sounds like. In the event that something horrible happens, you're left unable to perform two or more of your activities of daily living without assistance, or you are severely cognitively impaired and need a shadow, you would get an additional benefit. So it becomes X plus Y. X is your monthly benefit. Y is the catastrophic benefit. Probably the most hotly debated benefit. Admittedly, I am of the ilk of I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Depending on who I'm speaking with, my recommendation might change, right? If an older doc is playing catch up, and says, Steph, I'm trying to shave cost. What's the first thing you would drop? Well, that doc, I might say, look, I want you to max out your monthly benefit and drop the cat, as opposed to dropping the monthly benefit to keep the catastrophic. Because again, if we're looking at Vegas odds, and that's really what we have to do, they're more likely to need their monthly benefit. So I want that as high as possible. If I'm speaking to a resident, and they really want the complete package, well, then I might say, look, you know what? Just because you qualify for $5,000 a month in benefit, maybe we take everything down a little bit and then play catch up once you become an attending and start making money. So it all goes back to, it's a very unique, you know, per person conversation. So... When I first started looking into this, I know um, the White Coat Investors, a commonly referenced resource for us, um, they were talking about the large five companies that are physician catering specific that you had mentioned. Um, I cannot stress enough in my kind of review of this that that medical own occupation or specialty specific is an important thing. Um, you, it sounds like you went through the most Important. It is the most important. It's not, and it sounds like you went through hell when you were going through your process with the courts to try and get paid. Well, you know, the, the group benefit was, it just is, it was what it was. Um, they didn't cover work-related injuries. I was flatly denied and there was no arguing. Interestingly, 
then workman's comp denied my claim because they said while an injury occurred, my frozen shoulder was idiopathic or my fault because I continued to work while I was injured. So I was like, wait a second. They're not paying me because they're saying it's work-related. They're not paying me because they're saying it's not work-related. And admittedly, I caved and settled the workman's comp suit because honestly, after my third court appearance where a vocational specialist said that I could be a billing secretary because I could learn codes, admittedly, I was suicidal. I wrote my family letters. I thought they were better off financially with me dead because remember, I said I was really overinsured for life insurance and I just couldn't take it anymore. I did have two private policies. One of them was truly ONOC, but didn't have any of the bells and whistles. Uh I've gotten the same amount every month for the last almost 10 years. The other policy that I had actually had something called a transitional occupation definition, which if somebody understands and is making an educated decision... I'm sometimes okay with. It is not what I thought I had. What it does is add a phrase at the end of the definition that says you're totally disabled if you can't do your job, regardless if you're gainfully employed, until you reach your pre-disability earnings. Now, someone might say, if disability insurance is income replacement insurance, isn't that what everyone should have? The answer is no, because it doesn't take into account future earnings. If you had that definition as a resident and you got hurt as a resident or sick as a resident, they are only responsible for paying you until they can find a job that you can do making $60,000 or $50,000, right? If I can make what I need, my last year as an attending. Do I need that policy? Probably not. But there's like a mental F you because it's not what I thought I bought. And had something happened to me really early in my career, it would have been tragic, right? So again, it depends on who I'm speaking with, where they're trying to shave cost. But that definition, I really only am okay with for somebody who's making north of $400,000 a year. Because there's not that many things that we can do outside of medicine where we're going to make that kind of money. But there's a lot of jobs out there in that, you know, sub-100 range. And I've had residents and fellows go out, you know? So that definition sucks. Okay. So that was my stuff, right? So I had it. I'm glad I had it. We didn't have to sell our house. I didn't have to take my kids out of preschool. But I was both underinsured and didn't really have the language that I thought I had. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between going through medical underwriting versus like a GSI policy? Yes. So the traditional carriers, right, the the big five, have what we call traditional policies. And some of them will have a GSI, which is short for guaranteed standard issue. Okay. Traditional policies, you have to go through underwriting. So medical records, all that stuff I've talked about before. GSIs are bequeathed to specific agents who are incentivized to sell that policy. They are absolutely the best policy for some people, but not all. What they do, most of them ask like four questions. Like, are you actively full-time at work? Have you been treated for cancer? Are you a smoker? Have you made a claim? Literally like that's the application, right? There's no medical underwriting. That means there's nothing that they're gonna exclude or not cover. Now you might say, well, why wouldn't that be the best for everybody? Well, most of them, cap lower than the traditional counterpart. So right now, all five will get you to a maximum benefit of 20,000 a month. A couple have gone up to 30. Most GSIs are going to cap somewhere between 10 and 15. They don't always have all of the bells and whistles. Some of them have stricter rules about 
how and when you can increase. And just about all of them, well, one just changed. Most of them, you can only get a two-year mental health benefit. And right now, the biggest difference amongst the carriers is how they treat mental health and substance abuse. It depends on the carrier, the state, and what kind of doc you are. So Zach, as an EM, doesn't really matter. No one wants to cover you guys for more than two years for mental health. You guys, so they they lump mental health and substance abuse under the same umbrella. You guys happen to be in the middle of the Venn diagram. So I was a big fan of Venn diagrams. I don't know about you, but most recent literature, I'll let you guys guess, who are the three groups of docs that go out the most for mental health? ER. Surgery. Surgery? Nope. Psych? Nope. We're not Mm -hmm. doing too good at this game, are we, guys? Anesthesia and OB. That makes sense. That makes sense. Right? Makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? Because anesthesia, like, things are really good until they're really not. Yeah. Same thing with OB. We practice happy, healthy medicine most of the time, but when it's not, it's really not, right? And the three who go out the most for substance abuse are EM, anesthesia, and believe it or not, psych. So got access to all carriers have, yeah. So carriers have limitations for where and how they'll cover them. And admittedly, it was the only question I asked when I was looking for coverage. My mom was a very poorly controlled bipolar sufferer who had a late break. I was convinced when I turned 40, that was what was going to happen. The only question I asked was, who's covering mental health for OBs in Pennsylvania? And back then there were only two. So I literally only looked at those two because that was really important to me. And again, goes back to one size fits one, right? There is a financial incentive to having limited mental health coverage. And it becomes a, you have to answer that question for yourself, right? If you have a strong family history, if it will help you sleep better at night, right? Then you pay more to have full coverage. If you have no family history, you feel like you have a strong support network, you would get care if you needed it. There's a financial incentive to having limited care. Now, again, for certain types of docs, you don't have the option. It just is what it is, right? So that's really important, I think. I agree. And I mean, I think that the other thing I wanted to touch on too is that I understand GME policies exist within hospitals as well. Which are usually those GSIs. So I guess the other thing I wanted to ask too is I don't believe that they're allowed to promote them is one of the things that I learned. The agents that own it are allowed to promote it. Agents that don't own it can't promote it. So like, without getting myself in trouble, we keep a list as people find them, right? We are the first person to say, look, for these reasons, you should probably look for one. We don't have the keys to the castle to sell it to you, but it's the right thing for you, right? And as we've had clients find them, we keep a running list. So we can say to somebody, look, here's the person that somebody else told us about. I don't know them from sliced bread, but here you go. So that may have been a little bit of a misunderstanding. But, you know, from our standpoint, we're always going to do what's right. And, you know, even a step further toot my own horn, we took away the commission model. So the way that people get paid for disability insurance is based on commissions that have been negotiated with the carriers. So our company gets commissioned, but all of our employees, myself included, are W-2 salary. I don't want any one of our brokers incentivized to sell one product over another because of how much money we make. I don't, and they don't even know. Like literally, this is a, we don't talk about it. I don't want it to be anywhere in their brain. So when I, as a, as, and this is an important question that I was taught to ask any insurance broker is how you guys get paid. 
So I guess, could you elaborate a little bit more on how your company is commissioned and obviously your employees are? I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically it. The company gets commissioned. Okay. Each of the carriers has been negotiated with, you know, by our CFO and all of our employees are salaried and we pay our people really well <laughs> and they have great benefits packages. And, you know, when we started this company, we had a goal of we want the people who are working with us to want to work with us. The traditional model of insurance is, you know, boots on the ground, drumming up your own clients, eat what you kill. And there's a commission model, right? And so people can say that they're not disincentivized, but, you know, we've also seen in medicine, right? People didn't think that they were getting biased by pharmacy lunches and getting pens, but when they really studied it, they were, right? So we wanted to make sure that that was not part of the culture here. And you had earlier touched on like special populations and how um, disability insurance differs. Can you speak a little bit about how the disability insurance differs for women? One of my favorite topics. So obviously I come from women's health, so it is definitely near and dear for me. So there are a few things that are truly women specific. Now, number one, I'm sorry, I'm only the messenger, but disability insurance is more expensive for women than it is for men. I will say life insurance is the opposite. Not quite as sexist as it would appear based in actuarial data that across all fields, Women leave the workforce more often than men because of injury or illness. Men tend to die younger and more successfully at their own hands. So that's where the price gradient comes from. Excellent. Right, right. I typically tell women when we're going over illustrations not to compare notes with their male counterparts because you will literally want to vomit and punch them in the throat. <laughs> and I try to keep my men healthy. It really is that different. I mean, there are times where women are paying literally twice as much. Wow. It, it's nauseating. No. Sorry. Um, so that's number one. Number two, there are, how shall I say, carriers really don't like covering pregnancy. Um, and they look for any reason not to. Another feather in my cap, when I started doing this about six, seven years ago, anyone that had a C-section automatically future pregnancies weren't covered. And I went ballistic because I already told you guys I have no secrets. I have great hips, but not a birthing pelvis. So I make breech babies. And I was like, wait a minute, my section, not an abnormal outcome of pregnancy. It was standard of care. You can't walk into a hospital in the United States and elect to have a vaginal breech. You can't walk into lots of hospitals and elect to have vaginal twins. So I get that community medicine and insurance medicine aren't the same, but how about you write the exclusion for complications of future sections, right? Because I get it. Once you've been, you know, in, things change, but me having gestational diabetes in my second pregnancy causing problems for having a postpartum PE, right? Not related to my first section. I will say at one point when there were six carriers, because one dropped out in May, I had all six agreeing to at least look at why women had sections and they would change the wording of the exclusion. One company just swung back the old way so if I talk to somebody who's had a section, I don't show them that carrier, right? So it changes that. If you've had, well, let me take a giant step. Men really need this in place before you graduate. Women need it before they graduate or before the first time they try to get pregnant. If you've had a miscarriage in the 12 months leading up to an application, they will not cover future pregnancies. If you have seen REI or somewhere in your GYN notes, there's a question about infertility, whether you've gotten treatment or not, they will not cover infertility or future pregnancy. I have one company right now 
who I've gotten to change the wording for infertility stuff because as an OB, we see a lot of times where somebody needs IVF for their first pregnancy, their uterus somehow gets primed and their next pregnancy is a whoops, right? Spontaneous. I was told I would never get pregnant, right? I want that second spontaneous pregnancy covered. I do have one company who's changed the way that that's been written. If you have gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or anemia of pregnancy, which are all on the rise in the United States, they won't cover future pregnancies. And so I am incredibly like, if I could shout from the you know rooftops before a woman tries to get pregnant, she needs to have this stuff in place. We know that women who put off family planning because of education and work are at higher risk for infertility, are at higher risk for miscarriage, are at higher risk for needing artificial reproductive technologies. And who is that? Every single woman physician, right? And so I don't normally talk about disability insurance for med students. That's one caveat. If a woman calls me and says, I'm, I want to start family planning, then I will actually say, look, it might be a little bit more expensive. And I'll explain that in a minute. But you want to get something in place before your first pregnancy. Let's see what else. If you've had an abnormal pap smear, they want to see two normals before they'll cover your cervix. One company writes that they won't cover your cervix or uterus because they're connected. It's the dumbest thing in the world, right? So it will dictate who I show. Um, If you have had a breast cyst, if you had a fibroadenoma when you were 14, they will not cover that breast. I mean, there are so many things in women's health that I fight on the regular. It's really, really a pain. And so, you know, there's really like, whenever I say kind of get your policy yesterday, women really need to get their policies as early as they can. So in prior in prior pregnancies, if you had something like preeclampsia or gestational diabetes, but did not cause complications, they do not care your next pregnancy, regardless of how long ago it was, they're not going to cover future pregnancies. Sweet. No. A lot of times they'll say that it can be reconsidered after you have a normal, happy, healthy. So if you have a problem in pregnancy number one, pregnancy number two doesn't get covered. Sometimes we can get pregnancy number three covered. Okay. There's hope for me, you guys. There is hope. The other thing I will mention, and and you don't have to say whether this is you or not, but things like gestational diabetes can as much as double to quadruple your cost for life insurance as a woman. And that one, you have to be like five to 10 years out before they'll reconsider the health class. So another push. And, and I know we're not really talking about life insurance, but since I'm talking about women's health. Oh no, but um, we'll have yeah. you back on the podcast. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, women should For really sure. have their first little bit of life insurance in place before the first time they get pregnant too. No one tells us these things. I I've had know. two children already and I'm, I'm like, ah. I am trying. <laughs> I, I try to lecture as often as I can and to as many people as I can. Um, yeah, but it's a pisser. So does GSI policies at all work around this? Like that would be better for, for you, you know, because again, you would be the type of person that I would say, look, you've had a pregnancy complication. Do you want more kids, right? You may say I'm two and done, and then it's really a non-issue. If you say, look, I want three, four, five, then I'm going to say, look, at least until you're done baby making, this actually is the best policy because they have to cover future pregnancies, right? So it all goes back to who am I talking with? What are the issues at hand? What do I know isn't going to get covered versus what is and what makes sense? Because the one other thing I, I didn't say is a lot of times those GSIs are more expensive. 
right? Because they have to do their risk mitigation. They realize that they're going to capture adverse selection, right? Because they're not going to have exclusions. So how do they make up for that? Well, they charge you more, right? And that's why I'm saying it's maybe not right for everybody. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the how often disability insurance comes into play and what are the common reasons people go out on disability for? So the short answer is, I don't know. Um, and the, the reason I say that is the information is proprietary. When I got hurt, I tried calling every company and getting real numbers. What I can tell you is that the United States um, Americans with Disabilities Foundation did a study and they say that one in four 20-year-olds will incur a disability that lasts at least six months during their working years. Do I think that docs are going out one in four? Probably not. But a recent study has shown also that our ergonomics are as bad as construction workers, which I don't find that hard to believe at all. I can tell you that, you know, at least we're a young company. I'm actually surprised at how many young people we've had go out on claim. Usually brokers and agents won't see people go out on claim until they've been in business 10, 15, 20 years, right? We've had a few dozen who have gone out um, in the last couple of years. I also um, have a private secret, I don't know what the right terminology is, I'm old, Facebook group called Physicians for Physicians, which is just for physicians who, because of injury or illness, have had to change their practice or leave medicine. And I started that a couple of years ago because I felt like I didn't really have a support community. Doctors are actually really mean to doctors. And we have hundreds of members. So it's more common than most people want to think, but it's probably not the national average. I can tell you that musculoskeletal reasons are the number one reason that docs go out, followed by cancers, neoplasms, then it's, um, I can't remember now off the top of my head if it's pregnancy or cardiac. One of them, pregnancy, mental health, um, and then others. You know, I can say without, you know, messing up HIPAA, you know, some of our clients, like when you talked about, like, you just never know, right? Like, I wish I had a crystal ball. We've had people go out for obvious, right? Cancer doesn't discriminate, lymphoma, brain tumors. We've had somebody fall getting out of a hot tub and crushed coccyx and had an S1 impingement. We have had somebody hit by a car crossing a crosswalk. We have had somebody who their child um, threw something at them and hit them in just the right place in their head and is having TBI cognitive issues. Like, I can't make this stuff up. Oh my God, that's my nightmare. But with retinal detachment, not, <laughs> not a TBI. <laughs> we can't make that stuff up. You know, car accidents, you know, but you just don't know. I mean, and, and again, insurance at its base, right, is just, let me sleep better at night, right? And if you really look at yeah. what are the odds that you live in a nice neighborhood and have good locks and securities on your house, what are the odds that you're going to use your homeowner's insurance? Really low, yeah. you know? I joke that my engagement ring was insured before I was, <laughs> right? I would have much rather lost my engagement ring, you know, but it's, what we're taught, it's what we know. And, and a lot of times it's, we don't know what we don't know. Right. And so it's podcasts like this, right. You guys trying to get the message out, us trying to educate physicians in the best way that we can so that people make smart, educated decisions. Out of curiosity, are there any other special populations that have like deadlines sort of kind of like women who may become pregnant? <laughs> not that way, but 
dentists have different cutoffs as far as student versus attending lawyers the same way, kind of student versus working. So if we're just looking at like packages, there are differences. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't really see discounts as much in in kind of the lawyer space or really non-medical space very often. Um, Sometimes we can create a discount. We have one now that we're working with um, a hedge fund company and we're trying to create a discount. Like if you get a certain number of bodies and there's a lot of rigor or mall that goes into that. But from a health standpoint, look, we are all healthy until we go to a doctor. (laughs) As it was said, so we have a We had a critical care fellow. She just graduated, but her dad had a devastating neurological defect. He actually gave a TED talk and I I, I watched it. And I, you know, the one phrase that stuck with me, being disabled is the one group that you can enter in any time of your life. And, you know, having systems in place to help, as you said, transition into a new type of life is paramount. For me, you know, I, I, I have a bicuspid aortic valve. I time to time think about all the complications that could happen with it but so i hope dc helps you get a gsi yes you you actually you that was the first thing you said to me you're going to get a gsi policy and and that is and that is what i did <laughs> oh my god i'm glad that that i'm yeah good good they don't like aortic issues <laughs> no they don't and that was very 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 clear when i did um i actually said this isn't real this is not a thing so i actually went through medical underwriting with uh, we're going to save this name and we're not going to talk about it. We're going to edit it out. And then I started reading all the horror stories with, and I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. I, I talked, I think his name was Michael. He was a real nice guy. We did a really nice uh, consultation. They're nice guys. Yeah. But that's it. It wasn't, it wasn't a good policy. And like, I was looking right. through the policies and I was like, damn, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And that, right. That's exactly it. And that, you know, and if I had my druthers, right? Going back to the Kevin asking about timing, get this stuff in place before you start going to see a doctor. Really? I mean, and I'm sure I'm going to be smited for saying that. But again, I cannot stress enough that community medicine and insurance medicine are not the same. And there are so many things that happen in community medicine that you and I can talk about that means nothing, but it means a lot to the insurance carriers, right? Echoes are the bane of my existence, right? How many people get echoes for a random palpitation, for a random tachycardia, and we're told it's normal, right? Then I get the record and it says, you know, minimal mitral regurge. Doesn't mean anything. The insurance companies, it increases the cost. It changes how long they're going to cover you, right? And again, I want people to get the care that they need to get. Please don't take that the wrong way. But my favorite client is somebody that hasn't been to a doctor in in a long time. And then I say, okay, let's do this. And then you can go to the doctor. Right? You know? Kevin is going to get a really cheap policy. (laughs) Kevin's like this guy right here. Not us two. Not the two of us. So I, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was, I was just going to say, I, I think, um, you know, we, we really want to wrap up and I, I, I think the, the thing that I want to emphasize the most is, you know, we're talking to residents, we're talking to medical students and whoever else will listen to us. How do they get in contact with your company to learn about the best way they can to protect themselves? So I am probably the most accessible human ever now. Our website is the easiest. So pearsonrabbits.com. I was not smart enough to have a pseudonym when I started Facebook and Instagram. So I have both personal Stephanie Pearson. We also have Pearson Rabbits. So you can find us there. I'm on LinkedIn. You can call the office 610-658-3251. Send a carrier pigeon. You know, again... I really am. I mean, I think that that we are incredibly accessible. We have a, a separate pathway actually for residents too that can get you guys on the phone faster, understanding that things are a little bit different in residency and out of residency. So um, 
we've tried to make it as easy as possible. You know, we, we, Michelle and I were talking before the podcast and Kevin and I were talking before the podcast and, um, you know, we, we brought up your name as one of the people we really wanted to talk to. We heard your, we heard your presentation at Jefferson and then, you know, we read a lot about you and afterwards. And I, I just have to say, especially after talking to you, you are truly fighting for a population that I, I don't think is looked at. You're fighting for people that take okay. care of people. I'm trying. And, and when they're not, and it sounds like, you know, I just have to say bravo. This is, well, thank you. this is, this has been incredibly enlightening. Yeah. Well, we have to say that uh, Kevin had a little fangirl moment uh, <laughs> when he found out who we were talking to, <laughs> because like Zach said, we, we heard your presentation at one of our conferences and we're like, Oh, that was a fantastic presentation. I didn't even know this was a problem and she brought it to light. So we're going to talk to her. And Kevin's like, wait, she's in Philadelphia. <laughs> Because Kevin, where, how do you know about the company? So you sponsor EM Clerkship oh, with I Zach Olson. <laughs> and yeah, I, I love, like before I became um, a resident, like they helped guide me through and demystified a bunch of things regarding this whole process. And I think it was maybe about like halfway through you started sponsoring them. And that's how I became familiar with you. And Are you or you were just following the podcast? Oh, just following the podcast. Where are you, if I'm allowed to ask? Uh, in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Philadelphia. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, happy to meet up with you guys, too. I mean, <laughs> awesome. I anytime. Thank yeah, you so Zach is much. amazing. His podcast is great. Yeah. I went up to Ohio to visit at one point. And, um, oh, cool. He's a really cool guy. <laughs> he, he seems like it. <laughs> well, anytime... I'm happy to meet, happy to talk again. I think I have a talk at Jefferson soon. I don't know when, though. I know Dr. Olawaju keeps you busy. Um, I try. Um, but yeah, we will have you back for life insurance if you're up for it. Anytime, guys. Thank you so much. Good luck with what you're doing. Thank you, All guys. All right, thank you so much. Good luck to your son. Thank <laughs> 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 Oh, gosh. Bye, well, guys. Bye. All right. Bye.